Good morning. Glad you're all here. Um, a couple details before we get into the teaching this morning, but if you have your Bible right now, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be jumping back into that. Acts 21 is where you're going to want to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the racks around you, or you can follow on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to grab one on your way out this morning. If you uh, take one of those, we'd just love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Best thing you can own, right, church? All right, owning a copy of God's Word. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts 21, but I have a few details I want to get to before we actually jump in. And this first one is related to the guys. Men, um, winter study is starting up this Wednesday morning. If you can't be here this Wednesday morning, that's fine. You can jump in the following week. But Wednesday morning at 6.30 or Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. If you're an early riser, see you bright and early. There'll be breakfast there for you, okay? And then in the evening, 7 o'clock. This particular study is called It's Not Too Late. And the books, guys, are available at the table in the back after the service this morning. Um, it's a study of individuals in the Bible, one character per week, who felt like their life was too far gone, God couldn't possibly use them. So this Wednesday, we start with Moses, all right? Be very interesting. I hope you can be part of that. And to follow that up, um, in your bulletin this morning, everybody's got a little outline of the book of Acts. We put that in there, even though we've been through the study for quite a while now, I wanted you to see some of the history of the book of Acts, and you can follow along on the outline to see where we're at in the study and how much further we have to go. So we're chapter 22, there's 28 chapters, we have six chapters left. If you're interested, there's some notebooks in the back that are kind of three ring binders, and that will allow you to take your notes and insert them in there, and you can keep track of your notes from week to week. Okay, one last detail, doesn't have anything to do with the studies or the notes. This has to do with the M78 property that we've been looking at. You're probably aware, uh, many of you anyways, if you were here a month or six weeks ago that uh, John Palmer presented some details related to this property that we've been looking at. Up on M78, next to the old drive-in theater, between there and the bowling alley, is a 13-acre piece of property. And we shared some details with everyone about six weeks ago about the possibility that New Hope could acquire that. If you're new to New Hope, uh, the church is growing exponentially and we're going to need to do something eventually. So we're looking at this piece of land, right? But there's this, this rumor going around related to the land that I need to help you understand. So I'm going to deputize you all this morning so that you can share the correct information with people, right? So we've been looking at this piece of property. John shared with everybody that potentially when we're all done and building the building, it's going to be about a $6 million project. So there's this rumor that people have concluded that the church has taken out a $6 million loan, right, to build a building and, and that we're breaking ground in April, it's not true, okay? All right, so hey, raise your right hand. You're all deputies now this morning, okay? Here's what I want you to do. I, you know lots of people. It, it's a snowy, wintry morning. There's hundreds of people that couldn't be here today. You know people who go to New Hope. Tell them the correct information. Here's the correct information. We're looking at this 13-acre piece of land. We've made an offer on it, but we can't purchase it until the congregation has a vote and the congregation gets to approve whether or not we do that, right? And then Meridian Township has to give approval to it too. But if we own the land and if God blesses that and there, there is enough money now that's been accumulated to buy the land, we could buy it with cash. If we buy the land, we're going to hold on to the land while we're raising money towards building the building. So you have the real information, right? Okay, there's no $6 million loan floating out there and the church isn't breaking ground in April. We will come to the congregation for a vote, all right? All on the same page? Okay, good. 
I, I shared the same information last night and people still came to me after the service and said, wait, I don't know if I heard that correct, all right? So I just wanna make sure you heard that, all right. So we're gonna jump into Acts 21. I'm gonna pray with you in just a minute, but what I want you to do, especially if you're new to New Hope or if you haven't been here in a while, I don't want you feeling like you've walked into the middle of a movie, right? So here's what's going on with a study. Couple really big ideas coming out of the study of the book of Acts. Look at the first one with me on the screen. First big idea is this. God, in love and mercy, reaches out to man. Hang on to your amens for just a second. God, in love and mercy, reaches out to man. If he did not, no one could be saved. Amen? Okay, all right, we're, we're tracking. God, in love and mercy, reaches out to man. If he did not, no one could be saved. Here's the second one. That same God reaches out to those who seem completely unreachable, meaning there is no one beyond God's reach. Here's the third one that's been coming out of the book of Acts. God takes you just the way you are. God takes you just the way you are. Hang on to your amen. But he doesn't leave you that way. That's cool. God takes you just the way you are, but he does not leave you that way. He shapes us and conforms us into the likeness of Christ. We get to see all three of those played out in this passage this morning. But let me give you just an example of that third one that I just shared with you, that God takes you just the way you are, but that he doesn't leave us that way. Look at the transformation of the mind of Paul. Look with me on the screen at 1 Corinthians 9.19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. That's Paul after Jesus. That is not Paul before Jesus. See, God took him just the way he was, but God didn't leave him that way. God utterly transformed the mindset of Paul, but discovering that attitude came at great personal cost to him. He had to go through a lot to get to that place to have the mindset of Jesus. Now, here's where I want to start with prayer, and we're going to do it a little different today than what we've done in the past. I'm going to ask you to pray to God about two specific things right now in the quietness of your seat, and then I'll close that. And then when we come to the end of this teaching, I'm going to ask you to pray again at that very end. But here's what I want you to pray about. First of all, ask God if there's someone in your life who needs to meet Jesus and ask him to lay the name of that person on your heart. And here's the second thing I want you to pray about. Ask God how he's gonna to speak to you in the midst of this passage this morning. Would you do that? Would you just bow your heads and, and throw that up to the Father? Father, I know you hear the hearts of your people. You've just laid names of individuals whom you want to be in relationship with you and on the hearts and the minds of people in this auditorium. Father, help us to retain that name. Make it personal to us. And Father, I ask for this, the second thing. I ask that you would invade the presence of this place with your Holy Spirit. We've already declared you are welcome here. 
And so we ask that you would be our teacher and our guide. Show us what we can't see on our own. Speak to us personally. We ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I don't know that I can overstate the intensity of what you're about to look at. We're, we're going to go through Acts 21 and finish up the verses where we left off at, and then we're going to go into Acts 22, and you're going to look at it and say, well, this is a really long passage. Well, I got everybody out of here before midnight last night, so you're good, right? Okay? Now, it really, trust me, it moves really, really fast, but we want to go from Acts 21 right into Acts 22, but here's where we left off at in Acts 21. This really large crowd has gathered and they're in the temple square. And most of them are unaware of why they're even hearing this uproar. But there's a mob, and the mob has seized Paul. And they begin beating him, and their intent is to murder him. And the crowd is completely out of control. So much so that Rome has to respond. Now, fortunately, the headquarters of Rome is just outside the temple square. This massive area where the gathering of the Gentiles, the courtyard of the Gentiles is at, acres in size, can hold tens of thousands of people. Well, the fortress of Antonio sits right outside the temple wall. And so the towers of the, of the fortress, they look right down on the temple square. And the guard in the watchtower can see what's going on, and he immediately alerts his commander. His commander's name is Claudius Lysias. According to verse 31, he's the commander of a Roman cohort. In your notes this morning, if you pulled him out of the bulletin, you'll see that he's a commander of what's known as a chiliart. He's got a thousand men or a legion under his command. So he grabs a couple hundred of them and he heads down to this riot. And Lysias acts quickly and decisively and he crushes the riot. Everybody understands Rome's bringing a massive show of force. So Lysias is thinking this in this moment. Lysias is looking at Paul, and he understands the intensity people have towards him, and he thinks he's a criminal. He thinks, actually, he's a wanted Egyptian, as you're going to see in just a moment. Go with me to verse 33. Then the commander came and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. So Paul is the focus of the anger so he must have done something, so they arrest him. Verse 34 says this, but among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts, because of the uproar, he ordered him, meaning Paul, to be brought into the barracks, meaning the fortress of Antonio. This fortress is where they're going to carry out an interrogation. See, the crowd cannot explain what's going on because they don't know they don't know that there's seething rage underneath among individuals who want Paul dead. And Claudius can't get the info. So he's willing to interrogate Paul. And remember, Paul's in chains, right? So he's got to carry Paul. Physically, they've got to pick him up and carry him to the barracks. You'll see that come out in the next verse. Why the barracks? Because that's where they torture people. That's where they extract information. Go with me to verse 35. When he got to the stairs, he was carried away by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. See, in rage, they're losing all sense of fear of Rome. They're not afraid of Rome in this moment. They want Paul dead. And so the crowd is pushing and shoving, trying to get at him, and they keep crying out, kill him, kill him, away with him. Now, to this point, Paul has not said a word but when they can begin carrying him up the stairway into the barracks, Paul, who has remained silent, begins to speak. Go with me to verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? 
That's not Paul asking the question. That's the commander who's amazed that Paul is speaking Greek. A prisoner who speaks Greek, that's the language of the cultured. That's the language of the educated. Common criminals don't speak Greek, so incredulously, this commander is saying, you know Greek? He understands right away. He doesn't have the guy he thought he had. Verse 38, then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. What an astonishing heart Paul has. Let me come back to that. There's a detail that's mentioned there, the assassins, you might want to write it down in your notes, but the assassins, they're a group of terrorists, first century terrorists, and they're from North Africa, this region of Egypt, and they keep sweeping into Israel and killing people. So the assassins mingle into crowds on national holidays, and they pull out knives, and they begin stabbing people, and then they blend back into the crowd and disappear. That's the assassins the commander's talking about here. That's an interesting detail, but this is what my heart's landing on. What an astonishing heart Paul has for the lost. The same people who are trying to shred him limb from limb, he wants them to hear the truth. He's battered, he's bruised, he's in chains, and he's not thinking of his own comfort or discomfort in this case. Instead, he's got this passion for people who want to kill him, and that drives him to seize every possible opportunity. Go with me to verse 40. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. What an incredibly strange place for Paul to have his back up against. Behind him, Roman soldiers who are all too anxious to drag him into the barracks and begin carrying out the scourging, the torture. But in front of him are these mob of people who want him dead. So inside is torture, outside is death, and on these steps he stands for what might be his last stand because he's already been told by God, you're going to be taken in chains when you get to Jerusalem, Paul. You're going to become a prisoner. And he doesn't know that he's not going to die, so these steps may become his last stand. So what does he do in that moment? Instead of pleading for his life, he switches dialects. Instead of speaking Greek, he begins to speak Hebrew. As a matter of fact, specifically in the first century, it's known as Aramaic. This is the language of Jesus. Why did Jesus use that language? Because it's the language of the street. It's what the common man speaks, what the everyday workaday person understands, and Paul goes to that, and he says in the Hebrew dialect, hear my defense. Defense is the word apologia. You see it in your notes this morning, but also on the screen, and, and it sounds like the English word apologize, right? But that's not what it is. Paul is not making an apology for why he's a Christian in the way that we think of it in the English language. Apologia, to make a defense, means to clear yourself of the charges that are brought against you. That's his apology. In other words, I want to bring a clarification of why I have a relationship with Jesus, why I belong. So his defense is going to be really clear to you this morning, and it moves very quickly. 
But it's the same type of testimony, defense, you and I want to have if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, an explanation of why. So everybody look with me on the screen. Look at Paul's defense. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to say, this is who I was. This is who I was. But this is how God intercepted me. And as a result, what I do now, I do as a response to God intercepting me. So let's watch his apologia, his defense come out. Verse 2 says this, And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. This, this is really subtle, but notice this. Paul is speaking as a friend, Right? He's not being arrogant or pompous. He's not speaking Greek to them, something they couldn't understand. He's coming to them as a person who understands the language of the street. Hey, guys, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, just north of Israel, what we know today as modern Syria. Paul was born in a university town. In this area of Tarsus, there's a famous university there. So he's born in a university town. He transfers to another university town, to Jerusalem. What does he do there? Well, he stutters under Gamaliel. Gamaliel's the most revered teacher of his day. And Paul enters the school of Gamaliel to be trained by that great rabbi, one of the greatest in all of antiquity. See what he's doing? He's stacking up his credentials. This is who I was. This is my reputation. He's putting it right out there. He doesn't even tell you that he was a leading rabbi. Galatians 1 tells us that Paul was really revered among the Jewish crowd because he's one of the leading rabbis in Jerusalem. Well, this is a match for what he says about himself in Philippians, Philippians 3.5. You'll see this on the screen. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. These are badges of honor. May not seem like a big deal to you today, but in the first century, this is a really big deal. He's like saying, I was a Harvard Law School grad. I graduated from an Ivy League school. How can they not listen to him? With this kind of pedigree, he has earned the right to be heard. And so he's making this appeal to them. Here's what you should notice subtly, though. There is no accusation going on whatsoever. Paul is not shaming this crowd for trying to kill him. He's not saying, you guys, what are you doing trying to murder me? There's nothing of that going on. As a matter of fact, notice what he's done. He's applauding them. You guys are zealous for God. Way to go. I identify with that. There's no shaming going on whatsoever. There's an encouragement trying to draw them in. So watch, I speak your language. I was raised in your city. You guys are good for God, but you misunderstand. So he's going to start out with saying, this is who I was. Go with me to verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. What's the way? Well, the way is based on what Jesus said about himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. People heard that phrase, and they latched onto it. And so in people in the first century who were believers in Jesus, they were not called Christians. They were called people of the way. The word is hodos. You'll see it on the screen, but it essentially means people of the journey. 
That was the common term, so that's why Paul uses that. I persecuted this way, this hodos, these people of the journey to death, verse 5, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. I was once Christianity's most violent prosecutor. Paul was so intense that even the leaders of the land, the highest authorities of the nation, chose him personally for the assignment of arresting and punishing Christians to extradite them. He says this about himself in Galatians 1.13, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. If you were here in June, you might remember that we were in chapter 8 about that time, and there was this phrase used of Paul. It says he was ravaging the church. The term ravaging, picture in your mind a cougar attacking its prey, maybe a lion or a bear, and when they capture it, what do they do? They instantly go for the juggler, and they begin shredding it. Same word. Ravaging was used of wild animals attacking their prey. Paul has been shredding the church, literally taking it apart, beating and imprisoning people. By the time you get to Acts 26, you'll discover Paul says an interesting detail about himself. He says, when, when I encountered people who were believers, individuals of the way, I asked them if they would recant Jesus, if they would deny him. If they would deny him, I let them go. But if they would not, modern-day ISIS in the first century. He's the guy that took out Christians. Humanly speaking, just a question for all of us, when you look at a guy like that, would you not say that he seems completely immune to Jesus? Does it not look like this is the last guy you would pick to become a Christ follower? He's clearly not a guy you want mad at you. So question, is anyone beyond the reach of God? I don't think we all weighed in on that. Is anyone beyond the reach of God? No. Paul is not beyond the reach of God, even though you would look at him and say, there is no way that guy's coming to Christ. Now, that's important detail for us to understand. But there's also something else going on here. Why is Paul putting all this out there? He's airing his dirty laundry, saying, this is who I was. Because in a really delicate way, he's saying, I identify with you. Remember, he's got a big crowd in front of him. I identify with you. I arrested people. I tortured people. I chained people. There was a time when I misunderstood. So he's got this really large crowd in front of him who are quietly listening to this man tell his story about life change, and they're fascinated by his story, especially considering his past. That crowd in the first century knows the official position of all the leadership. The official position is this. Yes, Jesus was crucified. Yes, Jesus was dead and put in the ground, but he's an imposter. The disciples snuck into his tomb, and they stole his body. And then they began telling everybody that Jesus was resurrected. That's the official story. That's what they wanted everybody to believe, and it's a very compelling story. As a matter of fact, that's the story that Paul believed. That's what he believed until God powerfully intervened in his life. And Paul wants us to understand God intervened. So he tells us in verse 6, this is who I was, but this is what happened to me. Go to verse 6. 
But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Let me zoom out with you for just a minute. 30,000-foot view. We talked in the very beginning about the character and the nature of God. And the first thing we landed on, the character and nature of God is this. In love and mercy, God reaches out to us. If he did not, no one could be saved. You're looking at an example of it right there in verse 6. God in love and mercy is reaching out to Paul. If he did not, Paul could not be saved. He's operating blind. That's the 30,000-foot view. Let's go back down to ground level. Let's zoom in because Paul is charging full speed for Damascus. He's on horseback and he's on a mission He's going to extradite Christians to punish them, and God stops him, literally dead in his tracks. Great light flashes from heaven. He can't look because it's a blinding light. What has he encountered? The Shekinah glory of God. And if you were here on Christmas Eve, you know what I'm talking about. The Shekinah glory of God that is so brilliant, man cannot stand in its presence. Paul cannot stand. He's knocked to his feet. It's intensely brilliant. And you notice he says in verse 6, it's around noon. How bright is the sun in the Middle East at noontime? Well, of course Jesus' presence is brighter than the sun at noontime. He made the sun, church. He's brighter than everything around it, and Paul can't stand in the presence of it. And the appearance is so spectacular, he's on the ground filled with terror. And out of the blinding light... He hears a voice, which he recognizes as superior, a voice that he doesn't know, but he knows it's powerful, and he doesn't understand who is this one speaking to me. In verse 7, we see specifically before Paul ever utters a word, Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Look at that verse really closely. You might even want to circle it in your Bible because of this reason. Jesus is saying, every time one of my people gets hurt, I feel it in heaven. There is no wound you receive, church. There is no wound you receive on this planet that is not felt in heaven. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's been torturing the church. Jesus feels this. That's your sympathetic high priest Jesus calls himself our high priest, the one who can identify and intercede for us in every way. He says, I feel what you feel. Why are you persecuting me, Paul? Paul's stunned. He's blind. He's flat out on the ground, and he's able to mutter just a couple words. Who are you? It is difficult for you and I, living in 2016, to grasp how the answer to that question boom, smashes into Paul's consciousness. Everything that he has believed, everything that he has understood is absolutely contrary to the answer of verse 8. Verse 8 very simply says, I'm Jesus. I am Jesus. 
How horrifying and at the same time convicting. He's been beating people into submission to deny Jesus, to say the risen Jesus is nothing more than a lie. And now the Lord of glory is speaking to him from heaven. And instantly Paul knows he's been extremely wrong. And that knowledge leads to a response. This is who I was. This is how God intercepted me. And I had to do something with it. I have to respond. So Paul responds, verse 10, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Remember our first point, God in love and mercy reaches out to everyone. If he did not, no one could be saved. It's true. God in love and mercy reached out to you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning. But he left the response to you. God reaches out, but he leaves the response to us. In other words, it's free will. We have to decide what we're going to do with it. Paul responds. He does exactly that. You see that in verse 10, but you also see it in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, but since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. Uh, what I want you to notice here is Paul's incredible wisdom. God has really blessed him with the spirit of wisdom in this moment. He's identifying himself before an entire crowd that wants to kill him with a man who's highly respected as being devout, dedicated to the law of Moses, well-spoken of among the Jewish community. In that entire statement, you can look at it on the screen or in your own Bible, do you see Paul saying one word about that guy being a Christian? You and I have a Bible, and we know Ananias is a believer in Jesus. But does Paul mention it? See, he's giving a need-to-know basis type of information here. He knows his audience really well. If he identified Ananias as a Christian, this crowd's going to dismiss what Ananias did and what he had to say. But they identify him as a member of the Jewish community, so that supports Paul's story, so they listen even more closely. Watch Paul's response, verse 14. And he said, meaning Ananias speaking to Paul, and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I want to explain that last phrase there in just a minute, that last sentence. But this is a good time to regroup. We're almost done. Go with me to the major three points we've been talking about. Look on the screen. God, in his love and mercy, reaches out to man. If he did not, no one could be saved. God reaches out to those who seem unreachable. We've established already, because of what we're looking at in Paul, there is no one beyond the reach of God. Here's the third one. God takes you just the way you are. All three of those statements are true in verses 14 through verses 17. You watch them fleshed out. Catch it this way. Verse 14, Ananias, this highly revered guy who's a Christ follower but respected in the Jewish community, says to Paul, Paul, the God of our fathers intercepted you. 
He's called you. He's chosen you. There's a biblical truth. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it's because God called you, right? Are we tracking on that? If you're a believer, God allowed you to understand who Jesus is. In love and mercy, he reached out to you. That's what Ananias is saying to Paul. God appointed you, Paul. God is sovereign over salvation. That's why you find Jesus in John 6, saying things like this, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But God reaches out to those who even seem unreachable. And God doesn't leave the responsibility to himself. He leaves it to us. He gives us the responsibility of responding. So look at verse 16. We're breaking apart for 14 through 17 here. Verse 16, there's this exhortation. So Paul, why are you delaying, man? You've already called on the name of Jesus. You've got to be baptized. Your sins have washed away. Matter of fact, in the Greek language, it's written in the past tense. I should explain that. If, if you're of the understanding this morning that baptism saves you, and maybe you've looked at verses like that one we just did, and you thought, well, it looks like it says by ba- being baptized, your sins are washed away. That, that's not the way it's actually written in the Greek language. It's saying, having called on his name, meaning past tense. You've already called on Jesus' name, Paul, so get up and be baptized. You're not saved by doing anything other than calling on the name of Jesus. Do you know that, church? It's a truth of Scripture. You can't do enough good things to be saved. It's the work of Jesus Christ. Can I back that up with Scripture? Absolutely. Look with me on the screen. Romans 10, 8. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you're here this morning and you're questioning your salvation, you're wondering, am I really a Christian? Have you called on the name of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? God can't lie, right, church? What does he say? You shall be what? Saved. I talk to people all the time who are believers in Jesus Christ that question, am I really a believer? Am I really a Christian? I just had that conversation this week. Someone saying, I'm not sure I did enough right things. Did I do it in the right order? Did I do enough? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Yeah. Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Yeah. Okay, answer. You shall be saved. Baptism is an action of obedience. God says, be baptized, because it's a public acknowledgement. This is who I am. This is who I was. This is who I am now. So just very clearly, Paul's sins were washed away, not by baptism, but by calling on the name of Jesus. I didn't mean to rabbit trail too long on that, but I really wanted to hammer that point and make sure you understand that. So let's move forward into the story again. Verse 17, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem that I was praying in the temple, that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So this is after Paul's conversion. Maybe you don't know this, but Paul disappeared for three years. He went off grid. People didn't know where he was at. He was in Arabia. He went to study the the Word of God, to understand it better, to understand the impact this has had on his life. Three years he spends in Arabia, and then he brings all this information to bear back to Jerusalem, and he begins talking boldly about Jesus. But God intercepts him and says, Paul, they're going to kill you. 
So Paul goes into debate mode with God, verse 19. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Let's come back to the very first part that we looked at. God in love and mercy reaches out to us. God reaches those who seem unreachable. The, the very last one says this, God takes you just the way you are, but he does not leave you that way. Paul is saying that in verses 19 and 20. God, you know who I was. Look at the transformation in my life. The mindset that I've gone through, they know that I used to kill people. See, Paul's saying it himself, God didn't leave me that way just because of the transformation that's taken place. I'm not sure why you and I debate with God. I'm not sure why Paul debated with God. It's like we're trying to fill him in on something he doesn't know, right? It's like, Paul, come on, I'm God. So he follows it up by saying this to Paul, verse 21, and he said to me, go, right? It just ends the conversation, Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, put yourself in that setting. Remember who Paul has just said that to. This massive mob that has gathered that's trying to kill him. And he's standing on the top of the steps in chains. People below want to kill him. People behind him want to torture him. And he's just said, God told me to go to the Gentiles. Had Paul not uttered that one sentence, I'm convinced he would be free. Had he not said that one word, Gentiles, they would have let this go. I was Christianity's most violent prosecutor. I'm now its greatest advocate. This is who I was. This is how God intercepted me. This is what I do now. Look, look on the screen. Look at those three points again. This is who I was. I was aggressive against God. This is how God intercepted me. This is how God met me at the point of my need. And in response to that, I've, I've got to do something. I've been given this commission. This is what I do now. Now watch the crowd's response. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You're really seeing this through the lens of Luke. Dr. Luke, who's writing this, you know he's an eyewitness. He's right there watching this unfold. He gets to hear all these statements. You can see the way he's writing there. The crowd listens up to that moment. They can't stomach it any longer. The mere suggestion that God would reach out to those people, that he would go after them. See, in their mind, there's some people beyond the reach of God. There's some people who God just won't touch. The Gentiles, give me a break. We've got to kill this guy. Verse 23, and as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. See, most Romans didn't speak Aramaic. They didn't understand Hebrew. 
They don't know what all this arguing is back and forth about. What's going on? Why are these people so mad? Why are they peeling their coats off? The crowd is consumed with rage. Well, they only pulled off their coats for one reason. They're getting ready to stone somebody. They want to be able to wind their arms up and throw a rock. So Claudius Lysias says, I'm no closer to understanding what's going on. Let's scourge this guy. It's not as though Paul has been unwilling to talk. But Romans are going to do what Romans do, and they want to torture him. They want to pull him into the barracks. So they order him, bring him into the barracks. I'm not going to get into the details of scourging. If you've never read about it, you, you might want to read about it sometime, but it's incredibly grotesque, just this detail. Scourging that he's talking about here took place with a, a whip that was made of leather strips on a wooden handle. And at the end of the strips were embedded pieces of metal and pieces of bone and that's what they would use to extract information by stretching the skin really, really tight and bringing hell against them. This would surpass any beating that Paul had previously experienced. So the guards are stretching him out. They've got his hands tied to thongs of leather. Go with me to verse 25. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. Citizens of Rome were exempt from these brutal beatings. To subject Paul to scourging would absolutely destroy Lysias' military career. It probably would cost him his life for unnecessarily scourging a Roman. And so the, in recognition of that, the commander has to come to him. Verse 27, the commander came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Claims to Roman citizenship were taken at face value because the punishment for falsely claiming to be a Roman was death by beheading. So rarely did anybody ever say, I'm a Roman to get out of stuff, right? They were really careful about that. So it was taken at face value. But Roman citizenship also wasn't available for sale in the first century, except during one period of time. And this is how you can know the historical accuracy of Dr. Luke's writing in the book of Acts. Only during the reign of Claudius, who was emperor over Rome, did people barter and sell their Roman citizenships as a bribe. So if you gave a large sum of money, you could buy your way into becoming a Roman citizen. But Paul says, I was born this way. I was born a Roman citizen. Verse 29, therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander also was afraid. And when he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had put him in chains... So Lysias is really distressed, right? The word that's actually used is phoebeo. It means fear with great fear because you can see he came so close to scourging a Roman and also because he's put him in chains, so he's perplexed. This is where we're going to end this week because he doesn't know what to do now. He's got Paul in chains, so he decides, brainstorm, I'm going to bring him before the Supreme Court. I'm going to put him on trial for his life before the Sanhedrin. That's where we're going to pick it up next week. Verse 30 ends it today, though. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. We're just going to leave Paul sitting in that chair right now. 
If you're new to this story, you're new to church, maybe you're completely new to the Bible, you may look at this story and think, man, this looks like the end of the road for Paul. Is this where he dies? Is this when he gets beheaded by Rome? Understand what's going on here. He's making an apology, a defense. This is who I was. This is how God intercepted me. This is what I have to do in response to that. He's making an apology before a large group of people whom he never would have met if God didn't allow him to become a prisoner of Rome. When things look like they're going really bad, Paul is seizing the opportunity. And understand this, he is speaking for his life. And what is he declaring? Jesus is alive. I saw him. Jesus is alive. The authorities say he is not. Stop. Jesus is alive. He is not. Stop. Jesus is alive. Notice this. If you're on trial for your life and you're in chains and people want to dismember you, you better be sure that the story you're hearing from that person is what they believe that they know that they know that they know that they know is true. Otherwise, they're going to recant. Paul gives only one explanation the rest of his life for his actions. Get ready with a big amen, church. He has seen the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. Oh, man, how cool is that? The guy who was totally against Jesus is now sold out at the risk of his own life. I just put four closing points in your notes this morning. You're going to see them on the screen as well. This is an incredible way to conduct your own apologia if you're a believer in Jesus, your own witness. Just think very quickly with me what Paul did. He accepted the situation exactly as God ordained it, totally facing the persecution, He's just taking it on. He didn't cause him to be unfaithful to God whatsoever. He's just facing it head on. And he's using the circumstances as an opportunity. The opportunity is being seized. Every opportunity Paul has, he jumps on it. That crowd didn't gather to hear Paul preach, right? They gathered to hear Paul be murdered. But they're listening to a guy who sees the opportunity. And then we find this Paul is the same guy who's peacemaking towards those persecutors. He's not threatening them. He's not seeking revenge. He's modeling Jesus. What did Peter write about Jesus in 1 Peter? Being reviled, he did not revile. Being falsely accused, he sought no revenge. That's your Jesus. Paul's utterly transformed in his mind. So the fourth one makes sense. He's exalting Jesus. See, that's our pattern for us. We take the situation as God ordained it. We use the circumstances and make an opportunity out of it. Become very conciliatory, peacemaking, not threatening towards people. And in the midst of it, exalting Jesus because you see Paul doing that very same thing. He's not focusing on himself. He's focusing on what God did through him. So here's the really big question to end this. You've got that name on your mind. I know you do. It's only been like 40 minutes. That person that God laid on your heart, ask yourself this question, who is beyond the reach of God? If God can grab Paul by the shirt collar, can he grab that person who's dear to you? Absolutely can. Let's close it this way. Paul said this about himself in 1 Timothy. 
chapter 1, verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a blasphemer is a person who's opposed to the things of God. They're just trampling on the things of God. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, this is you and I, church, and yet I was shown mercy. Amen. Amen and amen and amen and amen. I was shown mercy because God in love and mercy reaches out. If he did not, no one could be saved. So if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, maybe you're just working through this, maybe you've never gone to that point, I'm gonna just urge you in the, in the midst of this time right now that I'm gonna explain to the church, just declare your faith in Jesus Christ. I'd be thrilled to pray with you after the service if you want somebody to talk to him. I'm really warm, fuzzy teddy bear, okay? Very harmless guy. I know I ramp and rave up here, but I'd, I'd be honored to talk with you. It's the most important decision you can make. For those who are believers in Jesus this morning, and, and maybe God laid a name on your heart, here's how I want to close the service. With you praying, and then I'll, I'll follow it up with a short prayer, but I want you to pray this way. God, the name that you laid on my heart, how will you use me in that person's life? It's very simple. You just put it up to the Father, close your eyes, and just say, God, how do you want to use me? Father, as these names come thunderously rushing before your throne, and as these requests come before you, offering up themselves as a sacrifice, saying, how will you use me? God, I ask that you would capture that. And throughout the course of this week, help us not to forget the name of the individual you laid on our heart. Father, show us how you would use us. Show us how to talk about who we were in you and how you intercepted us and how we responded to that. Make us bold, Father. Make New Hope Church in 2016 a place that's recognized by being bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that be true of us, Father. As you continue to expand us in numbers, God, I pray that that expansion will not be at the cost of the truth of the gospel, that we would never waver or fade away from the truth, that we were all individuals who were once blind, but now we see. Let us be straightforward with that, Father. God, we pray to you in the name not only of the risen King, the resurrected King Jesus, but in the name of the one who is also coming again. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.